BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. It's the California Report magazine, and on today's show, lessons about resilience. Ways we might be able to take a page from people who've made sacrifices or lived through hard times long before this pandemic. Like a California woman who survived the bombing of Hiroshima. Or a group of nuns who might challenge your assumptions about what it means to grow old gracefully. We think, you know, we're going to have to be this certain way all our lives. Well, sorry, (laughs) it's not the way it is. And later in the show, ER doctors exhausted from the COVID crisis open up about the mental health toll it's taking. You just feel trapped, right? Because you're in the ER for 10 hours, which are intense, exhausting. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. 75 years ago this week, the U.S. dropped an atomic bomb on Hiroshima, Japan. Sumiko Yoshida was just nine years old, and she somehow emerged unharmed from the rubble of her school just one mile from the epicenter. She tried to rebuild her life with her family, and she eventually made her way here to California. But she still remembers so many of the details of that day back in 1945. She sat down with her grandson, John Wenstrand, at her home in San Mateo County to share some of her story. I saw lightning, and then after that, I don't know me, I must unconscious, I don't know. Maybe I was crying or something, and I heard a note, uh, sound that somebody coming, you know, uh, uh, rescue me. So somebody came and then rescued me. After she was rescued, as the city burned around her, Sumiko ran home to look for her siblings and her parents. Her mother was in an alley holding her infant brother. I saw my mother and then that time, my mother uh, burned her half a body. So I saw my mother's, you know, the skin was peeling off and it started rain. It's black rain started and the area got so wet. I don't know. So the radiation came through the alley, hit your so. mother, mother on mm-hmm. one side, and your brother died, right? Next day. The next mm-hmm. day. After her baby brother died, Sumiko's father brought his body to a temple. But there was no funeral service because a typhoon hit. The only thing they were able to salvage was his little kimono. That's all. That's all. Only one. Nothing. 
Sumiko's father took her mother to a temple in the countryside to treat her burns. And at nine years old, Sumiko was the eldest, and she was left to care for her younger siblings while her parents were gone. I don't know what we eat or what we did. I don't remember. I don't remember how many days after my father came back to pick us up. And then we all went to the uh, countryside. My my mother's there. So many people. And that time was a hot summer. Sumiko remembers her mother lying on a straw cot in the temple. She saw worms crawling all over people who were wounded. No medicine. In the days following the bombing, people in her family continued to die. Our grandma died. And then she, uh, I had an auntie. My mother's sister, youngest sister, she was so beautiful. But she was a nurse. So she was right in Middle. Middle. So she never come back. Sumiko says she was scared for a long time. Scared to be alone. Had trouble sleeping. This lasted for years, even after she moved to Southern California to join some of her cousins in 1956. She was 20 years old, and she worked while going to school. What was that time like? Was it a very fond memories of that time? Oh, yeah, I think so. Oh, I met James. <laughs> James, who would become her husband. They met while he was a grad student at USC. He was the chairman of the Visiting International Students Association, and he met Sumiko at a convention at Disneyland. There was a dance, and Sumiko was wearing a Japanese kimono. On their first date, they went fishing. What lessons, or t- what would you like to teach your children, your grandchildren, now your great-grandchildren. What would you like them to know or learn about your experience with the atomic bomb? You know, nice to everybody. Yeah, always I nice to everybody. Then, then somebody will nice to, you know, my, my family. So you pay it forwards. Yeah. People were nice mm-hmm. to you and mm-hmm. helped you, yeah. and, and then so you help other people. Yeah, so always. Well, thank you for sharing your experience. It is very valuable for your family. I'm so lucky. That was Sumiko Yoshida talking to her grandson, John Wenstrand. Thanks to Alexander Stork for bringing us that conversation. As so many of us grapple with fear and anxiety around the coronavirus, there's been a lot of talk about one of the demographics most at risk, elders. But there's kind of an irony here because people whose age fits that description don't necessarily want to think of themselves as old. That has to do with ageism and this fear that it's all downhill once you hit a certain age. Or on the other hand, that if we just do the right things, we can avoid looking or feeling older. Producer Tina Antolini has been reporting on stories about aging for the past year, and she's going to introduce us now to some California women who turn a lot of common assumptions about getting older upside down. There's one group of people who've been held up as kind of heroes of successful aging. They have a tendency to live to be very old and to stay healthier and happier while doing it. That group is American Catholic nuns. So 
as a case in point, meet Sister Mary Edith Hurley. Here you go. All right, first on the program, one big room here with four little rooms. Mary Edith is a Sister of Mercy and lives in their large convent in Burlingame, on the outskirts of San Francisco. The convent is home to so many aging sisters that it has an on-site assisted living facility called Marion Oaks. Kitchen, refrigerator, microwave, office. When I visited last year, Sister Mary Edith was one week away from her 100th birthday. She delighted in showing me around her apartment. What does the pillow say? Will you read it? It says, "'Tis a blessing to be Irish." (laughs) Mary Edith grew up in a big Irish family in San Francisco and went to a local Sisters of Mercy Catholic school. She remembers hanging around even when school wasn't in session, watching the nuns. I liked them. They were good company. Sounded like they were having a good time, so I I wasn't too holy in those days. I'm still not. (laughs) With her spunky sense of humor, Sister Mary Edith leads a robust life. She spends her days scooting around the Marion Oaks facility with her walker. All right, let me take you down the hall. She goes to prayer services and social gatherings at the mother house of the convent next door. She's in relative good health. You can see why a nun like her would be held up as a model of getting older. But it's not for the reasons you'd think. There's this incredible kind of paradox that we've got. They don't see aging as successful or unsuccessful. They see it as just natural. That's an anthropologist named Anna Corwin who's been studying aging nuns. Anna also teaches at St. Mary's College in Moraga, California. So what are the nuns doing differently? The Sisters of Mercy, Mary Edith's convent, break open a lot of our notions about aging. I'm going to go through some of the assumptions we make, one by one, and with Anna's help, show how the nuns turn them upside down. Assumption number one about a good old age, independence is vital. In the Lord I'll be ever thankful, in the Lord I will rejoice. On a Sunday evening last year, long before COVID-19 made gatherings difficult, about a dozen nuns got together in an upstairs room full of couches in the Mercy Center convent. They're here for an informal prayer gathering. From this day on, all ages will call me blessed. For God, wonderful in power, has used that strength for me. Holy the name of the Lord. Following the prayers, they have a social gathering that strongly resembles a cocktail hour. A table in the corner is stocked with a cheese platter and other snacks, along with wine, beer, and whiskey, which is what Sister Joan Marie O'Donnell is eyeing. Single malt scotch? Yes. These are single malt. This is good. That's what it says. This is a Sunday ritual. Prayer, social, dinner. There is a cheerful conviviality to the room, enhanced by the fact that many of these women have been living together since they became nuns decades ago. They are practiced at communal living. And Anna says they learn to rely on each other long before getting old demands it. And that's part of this sense of interdependence, is that when there were older nuns who needed their care, they were there for them. And so then a little later in their lives, when they are the ones who need care and have to depend on each other, that seems like a natural sort of circular path. Sister Joan Marie O'Donnell, who is 78 years old, has been a Sister of Mercy since she was 18. 
She recently retired after having worked for decades as a high school teacher and then in healthcare for elders. I pay close attention to those sisters that are older than myself, uh, some of them who've been mentors to me. Very often when I'll visit Sister, I'll come home and I'll say, Joan, take note. You know, take note. I mean, really, take this in. This is awesome. Assumption number two about aging successfully, it's important to stay productive and useful to society. Sister Suzanne Tulin is 92 and has been a musician, an organist, and a composer for going on eight decades. She wrote this hymn she's playing, I Am the Bread of Life, which is in hymnals all across the country. She also founded a spiritual retreat center at the convent. I have a hard time with my hand. Because of arthritis, Suzanne can't play the way she used to. She has a tendency to get down on herself for not being able to contribute as she always has. Looking back, I wrote things for events and for people for an occasion, and that doesn't come my way that much anymore. I could make it, but I just may be a little lazy. <laughs> and that's when her fellow sisters swoop in, like Sister Brian Kelber here. Susie, I have to tell you, you are the heart of mercy, liturgy, and music. You helped, and I couldn't sing either, but you were so kind to me because she taught all the young sisters singing. But she said, you can carry the music. So I, I had a prominent place. <laughs> but really, you are the gift, and your talents are wonderful, but you are the gift. Suzanne, just by being who she was, was contributing in her sister's eyes. Anna Corwin says this is the ethic so different from American society at large. There is so much socialization in the convent towards the idea that being a good person is much more important than doing good in the world. And so even though doing good is important, they do a tremendous amount, there's this idea that being a certain type of person is the most valuable thing. And in the convent, there are ways of contributing that aren't physically demanding. Just praying for someone is valuable. This attitude around the person being the most important thing, beyond what they can productively offer, it extends to even more extreme situations. At Mercy Center's assisted living facility, I saw sisters with even bigger physical or cognitive challenges being integrated into daily life. Like this one afternoon, Sister Suzanne was showing me around her apartment. And I had to put more chairs in because I have visitors every night. One of Suzanne's every best night. friends, Sister Marguerite Buchanan, who's 87, joins in. Every night we come and listen to, you know, the news and Jeopardy, I... One of our sisters with dementia had loves Jeopardy. No, 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 Wheel of Fortune. And she's good at it. So we really good at it. So we watched that. The fact that this sister, Pat, has dementia doesn't stop her from being folded into the social life of the convent. She's not walled off on her own with other people who have memory issues. Marguerite says she's invited to play Rummy Cube. She wins every once in a while. And she also, does she do bingo anymore? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, she does bingo. She was president of our community and everything, and uh, she cannot remember 10 minutes ago now. She's getting so much worse, but she's so gracious. She's just, a, she's just gorgeous about it. She's not fighting it or anything. Yeah. 
And then we have another friend that we've been friends with all our lives, but she's driving us nuts because she talks about the same thing constantly. And we keep saying, Barbara, we've heard this before 60 times. <laughs> so it's not like the nuns are saints. They have the emotional reactions to these changes in their friends that we all might. But there is an emphasis here on letting go, which brings us to another way the nuns challenge our notions of how to be in old age. Assumption number three, as you get older, try your best to stay in control. For most people in the U.S., being in control of where you live, what you eat, who your friends are, what your future holds, that's paramount. But the nuns took a vow of obedience decades ago that meant they gave up a lot of that autonomy. I saw that acceptance in subtle ways with the Mercy Center nuns, like the way Marguerite and Suzanne have navigated their friend Pat's decline. Marguerite says, at first, she was angry at Pat. I get very irritated with her, like she shouldn't be this way. <laughs> and the poor thing was coming into a dementia, you know, and she couldn't help it. And But I had to get it for later, that this was just... I had to love her this way, you know. (laughs) It was all my need, see, to have my friend be the way I wanted her to be. Marguerite recognized that was a need she had to let go of. There's a lot of letting go around here, wouldn't you say? You know, physical limitations and, I mean, we're all laughing at each other. It's like we think, you know, we're going to have to be this certain way all our lives. Well, sorry. (laughs) It's not the way it is. Really, I just feel very, like, I've got so much and so many people. Every night I pray for people who are all homeless, and I have a hard time not feeling guilty. About everything you have. I mean, what in the heck do we do to deserve this? You know, you just kind of fell into it. Lastly, assumption number four about aging, that it's better to not think about dying. In the U.S., there's a general avoidance of death, as if maybe if we didn't talk about it, it wouldn't happen. But in the convent, there's a comfort around it. When someone is dying, the sisters take turns sitting with them so they won't be alone. They also have lots of frank talk about their own deaths. Sister Mary Edith Hurley, the Irish nun we met earlier who says she's not too holy, She's already thought about what kind of service she'd like to have. We have a sister that sort of looks ahead and uh, wants to help us plan our funeral. If She gave us a certain kind of a slip to put on the outfit we want to wear in the coffin. Oh, oh. As in, you choose your own funeral clothes. Oh, I haven't gotten that bad. Yes, they were Haven't you that? No. Oh, yeah. No. Oh, yeah, that was a big thing for a while. Anthropologist Anna Corwin says nuns' attitudes around death are probably helped by a theology that doesn't consider it an endpoint. The nuns at Mercy Center spoke to me about a sense of being reunited with lost family members and friends when they die. Few of them spoke of it fearfully. There's not a resistance of the end of life, and there's a sense that it's to be embraced as natural and normal and not to be looked away from and not to be avoided, but to be managed as gracefully as any other thing that they encounter in life.
So I, obviously, am not a nun. Chances are, neither are you. So what does looking at their different ways of viewing aging mean for us? I see it pointing the way our society could go. And the starting point for that may just be acceptance. Yep, we're going to get older. And that is natural and fine. For The California Report, I'm Tina Antolini. And now let's talk about the resilience of doctors and nurses. For the past five months, they've seemed almost unflappable, confronting horrors that most of us can't even imagine, fighting an elusive virus day after day. And when they're off work, they're dealing with the same challenges this pandemic is creating for all of us. They've become our heroes. But now they're exhausted. KQED science reporter Leslie McClurg has been talking to some healthcare workers who are really opening up about how the pandemic is affecting their mental health. Back in April, I talked to an ER nurse named Douglas Fry in Oakland. The tall, trim father of two was filled with a sense of foreboding. And it feels quite literally like we're standing at a shore watching the water recede into the horizon as far as we can. And there's way more beach than has ever been exposed. And... It feels like we're the lifeguards left at the beach while everyone able bodies running for the hills. Fortunately, his worst fears did not play out. The Bay Area avoided a tidal wave, but it's still gotten hit. There's a recent surge in cases and deaths. I am struggling. Most days I just feel like an undercurrent of electricity, a charge, a tension. Every day, the 47-year-old worries he'll make an invisible mistake at work and bring the virus home. His wife is immunocompromised. He says there's not enough masks and protective gear at his hospital to do his job safely. It is still very much an issue, and it is very difficult to get. One shipment of gowns was so thin at his hospital that managers encouraged workers to wear two. And even with two, you know, they were torn. They'd come off in shreds by the time you got them off. And now the current stock of gowns is thick vinyl that feels incredibly, incredibly protective, but is so hot. Douglas is soaked and depleted at the end of his shift, and he doesn't see any relief ahead. In all likelihood, what's coming this fall is going to be much, much worse. He says he desperately needs some time off. I've talked to some other healthcare workers who feel toasted. My name is Dinora Chinchilla, and I am an ICU and lung doctor. Dinora works in LA County, the hardest hit county in California. All I saw was COVID, COVID, COVID. I felt like every day was on repeat. When she looked around, nearly all of her patients were connected to a ventilator to breathe. Most were older, overweight, diabetic, and Latino. Seeing how disproportionately COVID has affected the Latino population and being able to be that person for them now is what I always wanted. As a child growing up in East LA, Donora dreamed of treating low-income families like hers. But that comes with a big burden. Like longer shifts. She insists on calling Latino families directly to offer patient updates. Current COVID protocols do not allow visitors inside the hospital. 
Denora thought it was kinder to deliver what was often devastating news directly in Spanish rather than through a translator. It, it's just, it was just so emotional. I, I can't say that I didn't cry often. And the heartache didn't end at work. When Denora got home, her two young children ran towards her, but she had to run in the opposite direction. How sad is that? Not being able to hug your child when she's so happy that you're home because you've been gone for 14 hours. Denora didn't embrace her children until she scrubbed herself raw in a scalding shower. She's finally taking a month off to reconnect with them. And even though she's enjoying slower days at home, recovering. But at the same time, I feel that duty of like, this is my specialty. This is what I signed up for. I have to be there. Victor Cisneros can relate. He's an ER doc in Orange County, another hotspot. His hospital is running out of beds for patients, many from families just like his. I grew up very underserved. I come from a very humble family, and I'm the first physician, first person to graduate like college. He's originally from Mexico, but now most of his family lives in L.A. Social distancing has made it hard to feel close to each other. We're very lovey-dovey, hugging, kissing the cheek is a normal thing when you, you know, say goodbye or say hi, you know, and it's like, it was hard. The lack of physical contact is compounded because Victor lives alone. You just feel trapped, right? Because you're in the ER for 10 hours, which are intense, exhausting. It smells. People are vomiting. There's blood. So he used to look forward to coming home. And now all the things that give you satisfaction away from work, family, loved ones, working out, going to dinner, seeing movies, relaxing, are not there. And now you're like, I'm in a couch in front of a screen by myself. It's like almost like you're in jail. He feels contaminated because many of his friends don't want to hang out knowing he's around sick people all day. He's trying to stay positive, but... I don't know how sustainable this can be. I, I know for a fact, maybe physicians that are already burnt out, this is probably the tipping edge for them. It's not every day as a science reporter. I hear people in medicine open up about what's really going on for them. You know, doctors aren't the biggest help seekers. Suffering is kind of part of the profession to some degree, but people shouldn't be suffering. That's Deborah Marin. She's a psychiatrist in New York City. She directs a brand new program designed to address mental health issues like depression, anxiety, or post-traumatic stress disorder, all of which are up right now among healthcare workers. The idea is to shore up people's resilience and be supportive of them. They need to feel like they're not in this alone. There's a hotline, a wellness app, and workshops designed to help connect nurses and doctors. It's providing a model for hospitals in California. She says the most important step is to ask for help. Maybe that starts with talking to a supervisor, a friend, or a therapist. It's not bad advice for all of us. For The California Report, I'm Leslie McClurg.
And that's the California Report magazine for this week. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our story on aging nuns was produced with the support of the Gerontological Society of America, Journalists Network on Generations, and the Silver Century Foundation. Original score by Blue Dot Sessions. The California Report's senior editor is Victoria Mauleon. Our director is Amanda Font. Our technical producer is Rob Spate, with additional engineering from Seal Muller. Our team also includes Asala Sanapur and Ariella Markowitz. I'm Sasha Koka. Thanks for listening. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from Hint. Fruit-infused water in over 25 flavors like watermelon, pineapple, and blackberry. No sweeteners, no calories. In stores or delivered from drinkhint.com. Paint Care. Ideas for storing leftover paint to keep it fresh and tips for using it up can be found at paintcare.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy harnesses the power of people and science to create innovative solutions for a healthy environment, just societies, and opportunities for human achievement. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.